Good morning. If you've got your Bible, please turn to the book of Exodus um, toward the front of your Bible, chapter 25. The readings that we just heard and the readings that we'll hear um, throughout the season of Advent concern God making himself known, right? Um, God moving from um, an abstract position to an immediate, right-in-your-face position. That's what Advent kind of anticipates, and that's what Christmas celebrates. But it's interesting, as we look at the book of Exodus, that's what we see here too. Um, There are seven-ish, seven, eight chapters in Exodus that are the only chapters kind of that we think about when we think about the book of Exodus. What's the book of Exodus about? What happens in Exodus? Right? Most people say, well, the plagues, um, and then the Passover, and then um, God's people go across the Red Sea and they get to the other side. Right? That's the Exodus. Right? Seven or eight chapters. That's it. Um, And that all is about God making himself known. God wants the world to know who he is and what he's like and he uses those plagues and he parts the Red Sea and he institutes the Passover so that people will know what he's like. Yahweh gets into the octagon or into the cage match. Um, For those of, well, this is a terrible illustration. (laughs) God climbs into the ring Right? And, he, and he starts to beckon the Egyptian gods to join him. And one by one, the Egyptian gods climb into the ring with Yahweh, and Yahweh knocks him out one at a time. Ten of them. Um, so that we'll know Yahweh is more powerful. And he keeps appealing to Pharaoh and, and appealing to Pharaoh to soften his heart. And Pharaoh doesn't. But God doesn't do this one time. He keeps on asking so that we'll see, this God, he's long-suffering. I mean, I can screw up in the same way for a long time, and God keeps on drawing me. He keeps coming after me like the shepherd will later read that he is. God wants us to know that he's powerful, that he's merciful, that he's just. His people who have been... um, Slaves for all these hundreds of years get to go around and collect wages before they leave, etc. The point of those seven or eight chapters is so that we'll start to get a glimpse that, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, Exodus 8, verse 10, 9, 14 to 16. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. 929, Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. 10, one through two, and that you may tell in the hearing of your children and of your grandchildren how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. This is the refrain. God is doing all this in order that the world, that all of us from generation to generation will know what he's like. Again, all of that is packed 
all that we associate typically with Exodus is packed into seven or eight chapters. The book is 40 chapters long, so that's 20%, give or take. That's interesting. Like, I've been to the Grand Canyon. I've been to different botanical gardens with my wife, thanks to my wife. Um, Grand Canyon happened, I think, independent of Joanna. Lots of botanical gardens um, directly because of Joanna. Um, Anytime you go and visit somewhere beautiful like that, if you think about how you spend your time, you know, you spend a lot of time at the actual thing. You spend a lot of time hiking and and strolling around and looking at all the different variations of flowers um, that are really similar, but there's so many to look at. And you go to the, to, the, to, the, um, to the Grand Canyon and you might sit with a, like I did, with an acoustic guitar near the edge and a journal and a Bible for hours and hours just looking and wondering at how amazing this thing is. How did this happen? And then you spend maybe 20 minutes in the gift shop right, at the Botanical Garden or at the Grand Canyon because you want to get a poster or you want to get a book that explains it or you want to get a Christmas ornament to remind yourself that, you know, hey, we were here and we want to remember this moment. The proportionality tells a story, though, and and it's, it's fascinating that what we think of as the Exodus occurs in 20% of the book. Instructions about the temple, or I'm sorry, the tabernacle, And instructions about how it will be constructed, they occur almost back to back. So here's the architecture of it. That's verses or chapters 25 to 31. That's uh, seven chapters. And then there's a brief segue or a brief thing where we get the golden calf. And then right after that, from chapters uh, 35 to 40, we get six more chapters on how the tabernacle will be actually constructed, and most of that is copied and pasted from chapters 35 to 41, so most of it is um, verbatim repeated. So 13 of the 40 chapters deal with this tabernacle that we don't even typically think of. Maybe you get to this part and you're just like, whoa, this is a lot of details about this kind of hammer work and this kind of color yarn that you're going to use and goat's hair or goat's skin or linen or fine twined linen. I mean, there's so much detail about how all this stuff gets put together and how many cubits wide and how many cubits long and how many cubits high. And so you're probably like, I wonder what the next book is. Um, Because that other stuff, those seven chapters were awesome. That was like Jason Bourne. And now I'm like in the long version of the the Sense and Sensibility that, um, that, that the BBC did, you know, that's like 13 hours long and beautiful, but, dif- but different. God is so concerned in those seven chapters that he might be known. And he is, but from where? Where is he known from? He's, he's like phoning it in from battalion headquarters. You never see Yahweh in those seven chapters of Exodus. Moses sees the burning bush. That's about as close as we get. Everything happens mediated through words that Moses says and things that Moses and Aaron do. 
That's how we see Yahweh. Seven chapters, and it's amazing, but he's far away. And then 13 chapters, a third of the whole book is about Yahweh saying, I'm coming to live in your midst. All of this power, all of this mercy, all of this justice, it's not going to be out there anymore. It's going to be in a tent right in the middle of all your camps. That's important to God, such that it makes the Exodus stuff almost proportionally like the gift shop compared to how important it is that God lives with us, right? It's really kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? That this birth narrative, in a sense, that, that, that prefigures the birth narratives that we see in the Gospels, that we think, man, those are short. This one's really long. It's a big deal to God that he's coming to dwell among us. I want to read the, the passage that Ashley read for us just one more time to, to, to reinforce. This is the thesis of these seven chapters and really these 13 chapters. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Who? And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So a few things, if you, if you have your Bible open and if you don't have your Bible with you, I encourage you after hearing the, these kind of themes, because all we really have time for is to go through and talk about some of the big themes that emerge here, go back and at least skim through um, these seven chapters. And then Aubrey's going to preach on the golden calf next week, and then he's going to preach on the, the end of the book. So we're going to get the, the tabernacle stuff again. This isn't the only time, but... I encourage you to read some of this stuff, to get a feel for it, and, and to, you know, to, to experience it, as important as it is, in terms of the expense of parchment and ink that it took Moses to write all this stuff down. Obviously, it's important to God. So God wants us to know that he's different, that he's distinct, that he's more powerful, that he's more merciful, that he's more just, he's holy, which really just means he's different by contrast to any other God, right? That's what the point was of those seven chapters at the beginning of Exodus. And that's what we see as we get to the tabernacle. As you flip through here and as you look, it starts with, in chapter 25, this invitation for an offering. Hey, you guys just got all this loot from the Egyptians, and I need to build something um, pretty elaborate. So, and I'm going to need a certain kind of materials. So if anybody has any of this stuff and you want to give it, uh, give what's in your heart to give. You don't have to, but give what's in your heart to give. So there's an invitation to give specific things. Bronze, silver, gold, blue yarns, purple yarns, scarlet yarns, regular kind of rough linen, um, uh, fine twined linen, just fine twined linen, um, goat's hair, ram's skins, goat's skins, and acacia wood. So that's kind of the, hey, if you guys have any of this that you can give, please do. And not to mention um, lots of different kinds of um, 
of, uh, of precious stones and stuff too. And then, uh, so we see that kind of list of stuff. And then we also, as you read through these, you're going to encounter all different kinds of levels of workmanship. Um, various degrees of intricate work. And you can appreciate this. Um, this is kind of like Thanksgiving meal. That's an intricate, elaborate meal, right? Um, everybody's going w- every which way, and there's a soccer practice over here, and there's someone else going to a book club. That's like mac and cheese or frozen pizza. It's food, and it's the same number of calories, but it's just not as elaborate. And what we see here is there are different kinds of preparations that go into to dealing with these different fabrics and, um, and, uh, and metals, etc. There's plain linens, there's finely woven linens, there's finely woven fabric that, um, that gets um, dealt with, with decorative needlework, specific things are inlaid in them. There's various degrees of detail in the metalwork, from everything from just plain brass curtain rings to hold the linen curtains to separate um, the outside world from the, the courtyard of the tabernacle to this filigree and uh, detailed hammer work that goes into to decorating some of the gold stuff. So what does this stuff teach us about God? What's the point of all these different kinds of things, materials and workmanship? You'll notice as you go through this yourself that as you progress from the outside to the inside, which is um, the courtyard of the tabernacle into the actual tabernacle itself, which is called the holy place, anything inside the tent, the, the courtyard is just open air. And it's, it's separated from the outside world by just like this wall that's constructed of linen curtains. So you come in there, there's an altar, and there's a basin. So that's where the sacrifices happen, and that's where the priests do the hand washings and stuff. That's important. Then you go, some people are allowed to go into the tabernacle itself, um, just the priests. And inside there, there's a, t- a table that has 12 loaves of fresh bread on it all the time. And across the room from that is a candle stand. And, um, and there's an altar of incense, which, which represents the prayers that are going up all the time. So that's inside the tent. And then even inside of there, there's that thick curtain that's so famous in the New Testament that gets torn from top to bottom. And this thick curtain separates the holy place, like the table for showbread and the candlestick and the, um, and the, the, the altar for incense, separates it from where the Ark of the Covenant goes, which is, there's tons of detail in here about that and how these two angels are facing each other and it's the mercy seat and it's where God speaks and gives directions to Moses, but it's also where the priest makes atonement once a year that we heard read from, um, from Hebrews. As you move from outside to inside, the materials get more and more um, costly. Like in the, out, in the outside, there's no gold in the courtyard. There's no gold. And in the Holy of Holies, there's no brass. Like, you know, you move from more common stuff, the closer in you get, the closer you get to God, the more beautiful he becomes. The closer you get to Yahweh, the more glorious he becomes, the more wonderful he is. The more exquisite he is, the more glorious he is, the more holy he is. He's different than every other God in that way, isn't he? 
Think of any other God that you've worshipped. Think of any other thing that you've gone after. Is it like that? Not for me. Anything else I've gone after, it looks good from far away. It looks amazing from far away. And the closer you get to it, the more gnarly it gets. The worse its breath becomes. The greener its teeth and the more yellow its eyes. It's grotesque. That's how Pharaoh is, right? From a distance, whoa, he's like a god. And his chariots and his army and his castle and his princess that saves Moses. And this guy must be cool. He's got boats. And the closer you get to him, the more you learn about him. He's just like, this guy's a disaster. He's a monster. At least he has a hard heart. He's not someone that that I would want to draw near to. God is saying, I'm different than every other God in that unique to me alone. The closer you get to me, the more beautiful I am. What other God is like that? Is alcohol like that? Is money like that? Is lust like that? Is there anything else that we're drawn to from afar that the closer we get, the more beautiful it becomes? I don't know of anything. And I think that's God's point here. The closer you get to me, the more beautiful I become. Listen, for instance, to this veil that's, that separates the, the holy place from the holy of holies. Listen to how beautiful this sounds. And only a few people get to see this. A veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. This is chapter 26, verse 31. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. In the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. This is the mercy seat of Yahweh. This is the the nerve center of God's presence here. The closer we get to God, the holier he becomes. The, The closer we get to anything, the more we know about it. And as we progress in the tabernacle from one zone to the next zone, the closer we get to the most holy place, the more beautiful and dazzling Yahweh becomes. That is communicated through the use of the materials and workmanship that God instructs so deliberately here in the tabernacle's construction. And again, keeping with the same theme, God wants to be known in all the earth that they may know that I am God, that they may know what I am like, and this is what he's like. Unlike Pharaoh, unlike the golden calf that we're going to see next week, I mean, from afar, that thing was probably pretty cool. But you get close to that party, and there are people cutting themselves. And I mean, it's mayhem. It's not nice. It's not sustainable. It's not beautiful. The music maybe sounded good from like 400 yards away, and maybe you're drawn to it. And you see people dancing in a party, and you're like, well, that's cool. Let's check it out. And the closer you get, the the scarier it becomes. Like, any of those other things, money, popularity, drugs and alcohol, 
the closer we get to things, the better we know them. And some of these things look good from afar, but become more appalling the closer they get. Jesus is like this too. You know, um, one of the apostles writes that we beheld his glory. The writer of Hebrews calls him the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus himself says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The disciples in the boat say, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. One of the wonderful things about the Gospels is the more we get to read, the closer we get to Jesus, the more beautiful he is. And the more clearly we can see God. God is forgiving like that? God is merciful like that? God is patient like that? God is precise and fair like that? Wow. The closer we get to Jesus, the more beautiful he is. The, close, the closer we get to something, this other principle that we see here, not only the, the more clearly we see it, the more familiar we become with it, the closer we get, but the closer we get to something, anything, the more like it we become. That's something like that we definitely see here in the tabernacle. This is not an abstracted God moving into the midst of his people through all these elaborate instructions so that people can just kind of like know that he's there in general. Like Pharaoh's palace. Like, well, this palace is cooler than Pharaoh's palace because it has that one thing about the progressive sanctity of the materials and workmanship. And that's a cool feature, but nobody goes there. Like our kids don't trick or treat there any more than they did at Pharaoh's palace. That's not how the tabernacle works. The tabernacle is something where God is constantly inviting us to fellowship with him. He's constantly inviting us close to him so that we can become more and more like him. It's always been like that. We see it in the Gospels with Zacchaeus. For instance, that's a really clear example. The closer Zacchaeus gets to Jesus, the more like God he becomes. He's like, man, I used to be this kind of shyster, and now I want to give back all this stuff and pay people back. Why? Because he had one meal with Jesus. We see it with lepers throughout the Gospels. When Jesus touches a leper, who changes? Does Jesus become contaminated or does the leper immediately become clean? The closer we get to God, the more like him we become. It's the same with all of our idols too, by the way. But God wants to say, I'm no different. Come close to me and I'll make you like me. We see it as soon as you get through the first curtain into the courtyard, what's there? It's a way for all of your sins to stay atoned for. It's a way for God to keep you at perfect peace with him. There's a basin and there's an altar. That's, that's it. Come in here and let's re-up your atonement. Let's keep you clean. Let's keep forgiveness and peace at the front of your mind. I'm going to maintain that for you through these things. Keep drawing, me, drawing near and, and becoming more and more like me. As we get into the tabernacle, we don't just see the atonement being maintained constantly, but, but there's this, these two furniture pieces that communicate hospitality. There's a table with 12 loaves of bread on it, one for each name of the tribes, and, and a lampstand that's kind of like keep God keeping the light on. 
God's presence constantly there and there to have table fellowship with us. Again, a foreshadowing of what we see Jesus doing, as Aubrey said a couple of weeks ago, eating and drinking his way through the Gospels. There's all kinds of verses about what Jesus did here, but the only time that we hear a reference of how Jesus lived here is that phrase, eating and drinking. He came eating and drinking with people like us, with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. The closer you get to me, the more like me you will become. Love me or love each other as I have loved you. The closer you get to my love, the more you'll be able to love one another. Don't you know that your body is the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit? Just as Yahweh came to dwell in this tent that's got a third of the book of Exodus accounting for it, in one offhanded, not offhanded, but in one verse, Paul says, your body is this. Yahweh came to live in you the same way he came to live here. Your body is the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. The closer we get to him, the more like him we become. And as in closing, we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper Think of how many ways that this table instituted by Christ captures these things that Exodus foreshadows. Jesus looks us in the eye in an intimate setting, that upper room, reclining at table, looking his disciples in the eye and saying, just as we heard in Hebrews about you didn't want this kind of sacrifice or this kind of sacrifice, but a body you prepared for me. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb at the Passover meal. This is his body and this is his blood. And he's looking you in the eye and saying, take, eat. You, drink this. This is for you and it's for everyone. As we pray, we're praying that as we, as we participate in this meal that's instituted by Christ, as we participate in the Passover, as we're members of his body, he dwells in us and we dwell in him. That we are living members of the body of God's son. He's pulling us in. The closer we get to him, the more we see him for who he is. And the closer we get to him, the more like him we become. And he doesn't stop with just some kind of really close proximity. He's fully integrating us and intertwining us into who he is, that we might dwell in him and he in us. The person of Jesus Christ who we come to worship the person of Jesus Christ with whom we come to fellowship, who sits at the head of this table each week and looks you in the eye. He completes this elaborate tabernacle of the Old Testament. He dwelt among us and now by his spirit even dwells in us. So let us draw near, draw near to behold him, to worship him, to be made more and more like him. Amen.